Welcome to the Get Sub Brazilian podcast. I'm Gar O'Hara, and today we're joined by Jason Durden, Managing Director of Blackberry Spark. From beginnings in events and hospitality, in his words, he fumbled his way into cyber. To me, it looks like he found a home. He started out working with a hotel group, running their IT ops and doing their security, then onto systems integration and ultimately into business operations in cyber. He's been with Aquian and Silence and now leads the BlackBerry business in the region after Silence's acquisition. We talk about the problem with the perception of vendors in cyber resilience and get Jason's insights into how the vendor side of our industry can be better. We talk about fear as it relates to cybersecurity, the impact of fear, the messy problem of IoT, the recent New South Wales cybersecurity strategy work and the national cybersecurity strategy. And we round out with Jason's thoughts on protecting the SMB space. I hope you get as much from the conversation as I did. So over to the interview. Welcome everybody to today's episode. Today I'm joined by Jason Durden, who's the MD for BlackBerry Spark ANZ. How are you doing, Jason? I'm good. Thanks, Gar. How are you? Thanks for having yeah. me. Doing well, yeah. Thanks. It's great to uh, to have you here. Where where does this podcast find you today? Uh, I'm currently in my attic at home. I've re- refurbished the attic at home into a, a work from home office. Uh, I mean, we were pretty flexible anyway before the, the pandemic, but set up a you know a multi screen desk, and I'm overlooking uh, Everly train tracks and the Commonwealth Bank building across from my house out the back. So it's not a bad, um, it's not a bad urban jungle view, I guess. Uh, so yeah, happy to be here. Happy days. So the first question I pretty much ask everybody is, how did you get to where you are today as the MD for BlackBerry Spark? What's your, what's your journey been? How did you get to, to today? Yeah, uh, pretty interesting one. I mean, I, I, originally started uh, more in, uh, you know, events, hospitality, leisure, industry, you know, coming through school, as most people do, you work in bars and all the rest of it, Um, study business at school, you know, always been highly interested in gaming and technology and, you know, creative aspects like web design um, and, you know, creative design and managed to really I guess, fumble my way into cyber, um, which, you know, funnily enough or, or not, many people I speak to are kind of in a similar boat. Um, you know, I think it, it draws you in the attractiveness of, you know, adversary versus defender and nation versus nation and that sort of excitement that comes along with that. Um, uh, so, yeah, I kind of fell into that. I, I spent some time uh, working with a hotel group running IT operations and really kind of got into the security aspects of uh, managing their internal um, security functions from a technical aspect, so administration and operations. Um, from there, moved my way into systems integration world and started on you know the dark path to uh, to, <laughs> to sales, as they say, um, and slowly moved my way from you know the more technical architecture aspects through to the business operations in cyber. So spent a bit of time with a company in Sydney called Acreon. Um, from there, moved to a startup world, a company called Silence, which is a pretty crazy uh, few years, and most recently um, now leading the BlackBerry business in in ANZ after the silence acquisition. So, um, yeah, not, not necessarily a traditional entry into, into cyber and IT, but uh, extremely happy that I made those choices. It's a, 
it's a wonderful place to be and I think you would agree it's a exciting industry to be part of. It definitely is. And I echo your uh, comments around people falling into it or kind of having a fairly windy tra travel or trail <laughs> to land in cyber. It's amazing the, uh, the places that people have come from, from, you know, recruitment, hospitality, uh, pure business. Like there's just such a um, heterogeneous set of people and skills that kind of all seem to land in this place where, um, yeah, we do this thing called cybersecurity. So, yeah, it makes it fun. And I love that you've called it the, uh, the dark arts of sales. There's a little in-joke in uh, in our company around um, me describing sales as you know the the dark side sometimes. So um, thanks for getting thanks for getting me in trouble. Um, uh. So look, when we spoke, um, you know, we did a prep call for the interview today, and um, when we were doing that, um, we talked about what's really a problem in cyber resilience in general. It's kind of related to the uh, the perception of vendors, and I've heard other guests talk about this kind of problem. Um, but from your perspective, can you kind of run us through what you what the issue is? Yeah, I mean, uh, if we kind of break it down to the the fundamental, like uh, the goal of you know security vendors at the core is to protect people and systems and devices, right? Like uh, you know, I, I don't think you could argue with the reason for manufacturing security technologies is for anything else. Um, you know, they're obviously designed to do a purpose. Um, but I think the majority of it really stems from perception um, and the perception comes from that dark arts of being on, on the sales uh, sales side, right? The sales motivation that comes with being the manufacturer of a product and um, sometimes can be positioned as a higher priority from a salesperson than actually helping solve a problem, right? So I think there's been a bit of a behavioral perception piece that's elevated that I think over, you know, over time, not just in our industry, I guess in any industry where there's a sale and, and a purchase. Um, and I guess the result of that is whether you're a customer or in a, in a government agency or you're in a, you know, a bank or a retail organization, whatever industry you might be in, um, not by default, but sometimes by automatic engagement, the, the vendor is held at a bit of an arm's length, right? Um, yes. You know, just till you figure out, is this person someone that I can trust and are they have motivations in the right place? They're really trying to help me. Um, and, you know, you, once you work your th way through that, you build lasting, meaningful relationships, which, you know, you no doubt would have experienced in your career and I've definitely experienced in my career where it moves beyond a sales discussion. It's really about how do we help each other? How do we innovate? How do we grow? Uh, how do we protect the people, protect the staff? And then, you know, at the ultimate goal is contribute to the company goals that you're working with, right? Um, but it's definitely difficult, I think, to cross that, across that bridge. So I think the issue really stems from just that perception piece. And I think there's a fair, a fair bit of work that we can do to help. And I think it's already happening, but help change that um, perception pretty quickly. Uh, I definitely I agree with you. I think there is stuff happening there. And I think there's an expectation more and more uh, for sales uh, functions. And, you know, sometimes that's technical people and, and pure salespeople um, to, you know, be trusted advisors, as you say, problem solvers, you know, be partners rather than just trying to sell some stuff and then walk away to the, to the next kind of um, next gig. Um, mm. And it's that transparent feeling too, right? It's like, you know, solve a problem you can solve and don't try and put a, you know, a square 
a round peg through a square hole, so to speak. Um, yep. So I think if you can get to that level of being able to say, look, we can't really solve that problem, um, or yes, we can solve that problem, that's help. that helps you build that trusted advisor uh, status for sure and something we try and instill with, with our teams for sure. Yeah, I'm sort of glad we live in a SaaS world because I, you know, back in the old days, you um, you had this thing where a platform was what it was, but it was really maybe too easy to say, yeah, we don't do that right now, but we, we you know we we will. Um, so people would sell something and then scramble back to get the developers to <laughs> include a new feature or change something. And um, whereas now I think you know SaaS kind of keeps everybody honest, which I think is a really good thing. How do you think um, leaders in sales rows? in sales roles, I should say, in the vendor space, push for that good behavior. So, you know, the machine sometimes is, if we're all honest, kind of set up in opposition. Like, what do you think? Yeah, how, how do you do that? How do sales leaders do that stuff? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you're able to quickly predict, determine, you know, with any organization that you work with, the cultural aspects of the way the sales team interacts with you as a customer and partner, um, whether you're the end user of the, the products or whether you're part of the supply chain, which is delivering the products to the end, uh, the end user of, you know, what the goal of the solution is. Um, there's a couple of things that I guess we've tried to do and what I've seen be successful. Um, number one comes down to the consideration of hiring. So, how you, what sort of things you look for in terms of personality traits, um, you know, bringing people who, who are the right cultural fit. And it's really that men, mentality of uh, banding together. Um, so people who really believe in teamwork, who really believe in trusted relationships, who really believe in being part of uh, something bigger than, than the individual's goals is something that we really concentrate and, you know, asking questions of, History and you know how they how they act in in other areas of their life, not just in in work. So we really focus on um, those aspects and the authenticity of that as well. You can pre pretty quickly determine whether you feel like someone is transparent and authentic, right? Um, so we focus a lot around that in terms of bringing the right people in, because at the core of any company is the people, and they will shape and drive and determine. A, the perception, but also be the lasting relationships that you can build for your organization. So that's number one at the core. The second one that we really look at is <clears throat> what are some of the community service initiatives that you can be part of, um, which are not necessarily, you can't measure ROI and stuff like that, right? Um, and if you, if you feel like you have a mentality of trying to measure ROI and community service activities, you're probably not thinking about it in the right way. <laughs> Um, so thinking of ways to support either, you know, child development initiatives or schooling initiatives or ecosystem initiatives, whatever it may be, right, where you can't necessarily measure a return on investment on sponsoring that, but you know it's for the greater good, you're part of the ecosystem, you're helping mature and develop the, the wider, broader picture for the cybersecurity and industry. A good example is something like Cyber Taipan, or where you, you know, and I were um, on the call a couple of weeks ago in terms of the New South Wales cybersecurity strategy. So having inputs into things which don't necessarily directly draw uh, business benefit uh, in an immediate effect is, I think, is really a good way to, to instill that culture in the business. Um, and the third thing <clears throat> from a cultural and engagement aspect with a customer or an end user or partner, however you like to categorize, is always thinking of, how do we solve the problem first 
how do we just roll our sleeves up and get in and get things done rather than be driven based on a contract or a purchase order or a sale mm. or, you know, a signatory. An example is if you're dealing with, uh, you know, someone who's in the midst of an incident response. Um, they've had a major, major ransomware incident where the house is on fire, you know, people are screaming, don't really understand how we're going to grasp this because you're in the throes of uh, something terrible. Um, having that ability to put the financial motivation on the back burner for, for a while and just get in and help solve the problem, especially if it's in critical industries like health or utilities or whatever services that impact the public. Um, because what that does is not only instills trust for you as a as a vendor partner, but it opens up a bit of trust for maybe other vendors as well where you know it, our community isn't always just driven by financial motivation. So they're sort of the three key principles um, that I think we can focus on in, in sales, absolutely. Phenomenal. So you've just kind of mentioned the idea of, you know, authenticity and transparency. And I think that's incredibly important these days. And one of the things, you know, when it comes to authenticity is how like, this potentially being an overuse of fear in not just our industry, but cybersecurity is, I think, particularly guilty of, you know, the FUD cell. Um, you know, it's all very mm. scary, people in hoodies and dark basements and um, you know, if people could see a screenshot of you and I, we look like normal people, in my opinion, you know, you'd walk past us and you wouldn't even notice, you know, it's not, um, it, it ain't what they say it is in the movies. Um, and we did chat at the time, and we were prepping about how much fear there is around cybersecurity. Where does it come from? Like, where, where does it all stem from? Yeah. And funnily enough, I, I, I did a, an interview with Triple J about a year ago on a similar topic of trying to get, you know, uh, new, new people into the industry. And there is that perception of, of, of the dark arts and people in basements and hoodies and hackers and all the rest of it. And I think th that's part of the problem is uh, lack of understanding is one thing. And I guess um, to expand on that, you've got, I think, primarily the human nature aspect. So if you think about it as a, as a generational topic or a generational question, um, if I look at my my parents, my mum, for example, she was born in the fifties, um, still kicking strong. God love her. Thank, thank, very thankful for that. Um, she she didn't have she didn't have a TV when she was you know in her very early younger years, in her formative years. Uh, and fast forward to today, she's you know running around with an iPhone and an iWatch and an iPad and everything you can possibly imagine because she loves it right and she's she's fortunate to be you know be in a, in a position where she can um, utilize technology and she's loved the innovation and change but if i break it down to her as a person in comparison to myself or yourself growing up with no understanding of tech you know very basic understanding of technology to a mm -hmm. world today where your shoes can be connected if you really want them to um He's got the complete lack of understanding of cybersecurity, right? Because in my mother's generation, that was all about physical safety and physical security. So, you know, lock your door with your key, don't walk in dangerous areas at night time, you know, don't talk to strangers, slip, slop, slap to protect yourself from getting skin cancers, look before you cross the road. And all those things still exist, right? They didn't go away. Mm. But I think what we haven't done as 
generations have gone and technology innovation has increased is think about the campaigning aspects which bring the cyber awareness and cyber education along with the new technologies that come out to market. Um, and it also comes down to the innovation of change, right? We today wouldn't be able to talk on this podcast about what we think the technology industry will look like in 10 years, maybe even five years' time because we just can't predict that. And that's also a human nature aspect where when we start to lose control, um, <laughs> humans don't really like that, right? Like we like to know, mm. we like to be able to predict it, we like to be able to control it, you know, within our realms of what, what we feel is comfortable. So I think that's some of the issue of where that stems from as well. Yeah, definitely. What's the impact? So, I mean, fear obviously exists and depending on your generation, probably at different levels. I've got a, I've got a father who actually just bought a new machine. I'm going to say something on the podcast that has me really embarrassed. My dad was running a Windows 7 machine that had no business uh, ever being turned on, but um, finally got around to getting that replaced. Uh, he's back in Dublin, so there was a little bit of kind of legwork to do that from from Sydney. But um, so, you know, very different version of fear. Right? I get emails and, and WhatsApp messages from him where he's taken a photo of an email and said, like, what is this? So this is okay. And, you know, so there's obviously some something has rung a bell in his head and, and I think that's good. I'd rather he was afraid than just, you know, cavalierly clicking on links and, you know, putting in his credentials all over yeah. the, the internet. Um, but when you, when you bring that into organizations like yours or mine or, you know, that potentially mm -hmm. our customers, um, what's the impact that you see like that fear um, has for organizations? Yeah, I mean, if, if you think about it in a, in a business sense, businesses every day take calculated risks, right? Um, you know, you it's risk-reward. That scenario has existed for eternity and will continue to exist. And businesses take those calculated, whether it's, you know, conservative, low risk, medium risk, high risk, there's a risk decision that happens when you're innovating within a business. And where those fears can I've seen can impact in two ways. One... Uh, fear to quickly adopt or rapidly uh, enact change. Mm. COVID-19 has been a prime example of that where um, we've seen examples of many organisations had already embraced the new working model, right, of cloud infrastructure, identity as a service, platform as a service, software as a service, flexible working environments, digital workplaces, and they haven't had too much of an impact, right? They were like, okay, well, we were already ready for this because, you know, we we took we took the journey. We went, you know, we took we went down the path. Um, we understood how we could benefit both from productivity and security by embracing these new opportunities with cloud services and a whole bunch of other stuff, right? Mm. On the flip side, companies who were too scared to, uh, you know, put the crown jewels outside of the outside of the, the, the data center with all the padlocks on it um, and, and trust in their vendor partnerships or trust in their ecosystem partnerships to help them enhance business have struggled. Like there's been prime examples of people having to deploy VPNs to everybody and then the VPNs are falling over and you have to put more load balances in and now you've got direct access into the network from any device and that creates huge security implications. So... Um, those companies are now being forced to adapt and change 
uh, and it's going to end up being more costly for them because what you know some of what those organisations have implemented today won't necessarily be what the solution they'll use for the future. So they'll have to double pay in terms of their innovation. Um, so I think that that's the real tangible impact of that. I think the other piece is also you know the back to the generational thing. If you think of as an individual, uh, whether you're an individual at home or an individual at work, sure, maybe behaviorally you're a little bit different in terms of what you do and, and the conversations that you have, but at the core you're the same person. So um, if you're not educated at work, especially if you're in a senior executive position, if you don't really understand cyber and the risks that pose uh, from you as an individual at home and an individual at work, there's plenty of examples of people being fished or reconnaissance being done on senior executives at high-profile companies to find the weak spot, right? Mm. Um, and maybe that's through your personal device or maybe it's through your Facebook account where you put pictures of your children playing soccer or whatever it may be. Um, it happens, right? And that's not to spread fear again, but the reality is that has happened. So it does transition to both individual and personal. And, and it's really why things, podcasts like this and, and education programs are really important for people to be aware what are the risks and how can they start to educate themselves around it. Yeah. And like riffing on that though, with the, the really the speed of innovation, because I think that's shocking to me sometimes just how quickly uh, and hopefully it's not too much of a function of my age, but just how quickly everything is changing around us all. So, so, so very fast. Um, and when we were chatting uh, last week, I think it was like we talked about part of the problem being that like for many people, there's no way for them to really understand what they're being warned about. They're being warned, but they don't necessarily get it when it comes to cyber resilience. It's not their, it's not part of their kind of life. It's not in their wheelhouse. Um, and that's like going across non-tech citizens to board members for a public company. Like there's no particular type of person. How do you reckon we can change that understanding of cyber resilience, cyber security for everyone? If like if we can even do that. Yeah, I mean that's again. I think that's a that's a long term generational shift that will happen. And I think we're doing some really good things, right? Like I think the the concept of cyber awareness and education in pretty much every corporate environment you go into today is pretty well pretty well known pretty well understood there's better implementations than others of course but i think most people uh most companies and most organizations are on that path which is tick number one um there's now examples and you've got you've got also got common uh society campaigns like Stay Smart Online Week or, you know, Cybersecurity Month, et cetera, et cetera, that come out as well. But I think we can, that's where we can really change the game more effectively is educating at a level where you're not necessarily in any level of understanding. And what I mean by that is if you think about a child in a school, for example, we teach them, we teach them about, you know, uh, putting on sunscreen uh, before you go outside and you go to the beach. So slip, slop, slap. Um, you've got do the five, stay alive before you, you know, you you go swimming in the pool or you learn to swim or you go to the beach or whatever else, right? So there's campaign examples where we're teaching at a, at a core human fundamental level in your formative years of how to be safe in certain situations. Um, mm -hmm. And we also educate about the heroes in those situations like, uh, you know, a policeman or policewoman um, a paramedic, a firefighter, for example. And I think 
if we started to think about cybersecurity in that context where cybersecurity is not just about someone hacking you, it's just about safe use of technology. Um, yep. So it, it becomes less of a pointed thing. It's more of a broad understood spectrum. I think that's how we can really change things. Um, and I hope to see some of those grassroots programs come through. You know, we've been talking a lot with government recently around some strategies and ideas, and that's certainly one of our recommendations is think about how can we impact the next generation of people that are coming through. And it's not to forget about the generations that exist today. We still have to continue that education. But, uh, you know, you sort of said at the start of this uh, this session, you know, teaching an old dog new tricks can be less less impactful than teaching a new job a new dog before they before they start so mm. um thinking of that concept i think a great campaign around slip slop up or something similar would be would be a great way to do that yeah yeah i totally agree with you and you know you're, you're using your example um where you call it the hero you know the farman or the uh the doctor um, I wonder, are there mm. going to be like two-year-old kids when, you know, they're asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? They might say like cybersecurity analyst and, you know, we're in that same category or they're <laughs> in the same category as uh, people who are saving lives. You never know. Um, and we laugh you know, about that. But the reality yeah. is some some of these analysts who, who do work in critical industries like hospitals or utility sectors, if they go down, that's a major impact to us as citizens of a country right so they're in fact they do save lives and um, i think we talked about it last week there was that example you know i'm sure there's many other examples but the prime measurement example in germany about um, that person having to be diverted to a different hospital because of a mm. ransomware attack on a hospital and they actually died um you know so that's a prime prime example of how these people can and are heroes in 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 many instances for sure yeah it is it, like I totally agree with you. I think they, they're reporting that uh, case out of Germany is the first, like you can draw a direct line to what they're considering mm. homicide, which I think that's an interesting change. Also, you know, you're moving away from mm. cybercrime charges into uh, homicide, uh, but I think it's the canary in the coal mine, if I'm honest. And I think you're spot on. Like the job of doing security keeps people in jobs. And keeps people physically safe, and you know I think that's mm. partly forgotten sometimes that you know this work that happens sitting behind computers, obviously for the most part, it's not as visually um, impactful as somebody in a farmer's outfit, you know, fighting big flames. But and I'm, you know, sorry, I'm not before you know I'm not showing any equivalence, um, but you know, the the point mm. being, you're spot on. Like they are heroes, and um, it is an incredibly incredibly important um, kind of role in society today. We, you know, we're in a position these days where um, cybersecurity has gone from, you know, we've talked about clicking on links and, and some of the stuff that's very obvious when you're sitting, you know, we're both sitting at uh, computers here having a conversation. Um, mm -hmm. But when we spoke, you used the example of somebody walking into Bunnings, you know, and buying a smart light bulb. And mm -hmm. that's a really different threat, right? Because it's not my if I'm buying a light bulb, my mind is not in the I'm going on a computer, so now I need to be staying safe online. I'm buying a light bulb. You know, it's it's a really different thing. Yeah. Um, like it's a huge cybersecurity problem. I think is the a fair statement. You know, and in in ways, I feel like the horse might have already bolted. You know, that the the sort of market dynamics where what consumers want is cheap, but cheap means generally not secure. Um, do you have a magic wand? Uh, how do we how do we fix this problem? 
Yeah, and no, I wish I had a magic wand. Hopefully, a few other problems I could solve as well. But, it could be an IoT. Um, it could be an internet-connected magic wand. You know. And, yeah, well, <laughs> I'd. Yeah, I probably wouldn't buy it if it wasn't. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, it's a really difficult area, as you said. You know, there's a few questions that really come to mind. Is a you know where do, where does the responsibility sit for something like that? Does it sit with the manufacturer? Does it sit with the, the retailer who's selling the product? Does it sit with government for legislation? Does it sit with, um, you know, uh, again, education, edu- uh, institutions to educate people and you know, kids uh, to make sure that once they get into adult world, again, not to say that we're, <laughs> we're a lost cause, but uh, we're, we're privileged enough and educated enough to be able to see and understand those risks right so we really need mm. to focus on the people who who can't um and i guess if i look at that my view is number one starts with government legislation it has to because you need a stick to to, to pull when you need it um mm. you know, human beings by nature we won't do anything unless we really have to it's, you know, that's not any individual it's just a kind of common understanding um and the government did recently release the iot code of practice um, standards yep. uh, I think it was this year 2020 yeah a um, little bit behind other other countries the UK has had one for a while US but at least we're making some steps right like we're, we're getting towards understanding that a little bit closer and it is that example and that that's that's at the core of where I believe the the issue and risk is you know large corporates investing in IOT they already have an understanding of cyber and risk right and they already have an appetite for cyber and risk and you know not that they're perfect but they make really and as we talked about earlier like calculated risk rate decisions Mm. to drive innovation and speed of change and all the rest of it right so i think there's still a risk of iot in corporates but maybe not as large as it is in the general consumer space where again using my mom as an example she's probably gone down to you know bunnings or kmart or whatever it may be and and purchased a a widget that can be connected through the Wi-Fi to her phone to manage X, Y, and Z. Even smart TVs—they've been around for a long time. Mm. Um, there's plenty of plenty of examples of people using smart TVs that were built ten years ago that are still connected to the internet that haven't had a software update in ten years. That are probably the most vulnerable device you could possibly own. Mm. Um, which store your credit card information, or a bunch of low login information for apps and passwords that you probably use on mul- multiple systems as well. Um, so there's a huge area there which we don't really talk about. Um, but I guess if you were a consumer listening to the podcast, you know, there's a couple of tips you can you can take away. Is a buy a device that that does have a regular update structure as a commercial product where the software has an update updating life cycle, so you can stay up to date with you know making sure security patches and everything are, are done. Um, you know. As much as I can say this in a position of privilege is try not to have too many old devices, um, you know, update your, your TVs and, you know, your widgets on a regular basis from a hardware and firmware perspective. That's really important. So having a look at that um, and also asking if you don't understand, I think it comes back to that notion of convenience where, you know, being able to open your garage with your phone app or unlock your door if, you know, you've got a friend coming over and you're not home yet, so you could let them in. That's a huge convenience thing. But we, we also 
as a human drive towards convenience rather than think about risk because no one wants to think about negative negative stuff. So I think if we can get a mindset around, well, it's not a negative to think about the risk, it's actually enabling my convenience. And if we just understand mm. that risk, then you know, whatever convenience and innovation you want to drive can be can be put forth for you. But I also think at the manufacturer level, and this is something that, you know, shameless plug for for us at BlackBerry, but something that we really do well, uh, not across the whole IoT ecosystem, but in the IoT spaces that we play, namely things like drones, automotive, medical device equipment, et cetera. Um, And that, that comes down to the software layer that gets implemented in these technologies. So BlackBerry today has over 150 million cars on the road where we power the infotainment systems, which also power the driver engagement systems, which also power all of the digital displays and dashboards that you see. Mm. Um, and if you think about that as a risk, man, if someone took over your car, like... You, that's probably one of the most vulnerable positions you've ever been in. And there is a there is an ongoing debate about how we're going to manage that as a society with connected vehicles and you know smart cities and all the rest of it. So fundamentally in that notion of secure by design is before the car even gets out onto the road, that's where we as a company have been really uh, heavily focused on ensuring the secure by design aspect. So the operating system, the software, you know, the, the communications, all, all those aspects which come with um, delivering mm. products but again that's a that's a company uh, goodwill thing as well as we want to make sure we're doing the right thing for society not every company does that right and yeah. know, it comes back to your comment before of you know cheap routes to market competitiveness um, there's many examples I was reading an article uh, a couple of days ago where the drone market is dominated, I think, 70% market share by a manufacturer from a country up north. Um, and, and you know, we always talk about political tensions between uh, these countries and other Five Eyes countries. Uh, and the article was talking about, well, if that nation-state company was instructed by that government to, you know, collect surveillance, take photos, videos, that's all possible through these devices, but we as citizens go and buy them because they're cool and you can fly them around and we don't even think about that stuff. So not that I have an answer to that specific use case, but that's a question of how do we solve something like that? Who's who's responsible for something like that? Um, yeah. That's a difficult one to, to cover off. It is interesting. Uh, Privasec, I don't know if you're aware of them as a company, but they've got a a division or a, a part of their organization, I believe, dedicated to drone security. So, um, mm. yeah, look, we live in strange days. It's a little bit Blade Runner 2049, it feels like sometimes. You know, we've kind of arrived mm-hmm. here and it's like, you know, the the boiled frog analogy where it does feel like, you know, the, the toothpaste is out of the tube and all these devices are out there and they are cheap, they are unsecured. And I agree with you, I think. The big stick, like it sort of has to be there in situations like this. And I think the UK actually went for guidelines, but um, in Parliament when they were discussing it, I feel like the MP said actually like guidelines, it's just not enough. Like we need to kind of make mm. this stuff law. And and that's yeah. where maybe the rubber hits the road. But yeah, who knows? Who knows if we get there? And the other, the other example of that is, you know, if you look at the medical industry specifically, and if you're working in this industry, you're listening to the podcast, you're probably going to be like, God, I wish it would, would change or improve. But if you go and buy an MRI today, um, 
nine times out of ten it will come with Windows XP built into it uh, because when the device itself was uh, designed, created, you know, put together essentially and meet legislation and, you know, the outcomes of what the product needs to do, um, that costs millions and millions and millions of dollars. And current legislation stipulates that if you change the initial design from a hardware or software perspective, you have to recertify that device to be able to be used in a mm-hmm. hospital. So if you go and then implement, you know, install a security technology on that particular device, it becomes technically non-compliant and the, and the manufacturer doesn't provide warranty. So you end up with all these devices that have outdated uh, operating systems, hugely vulnerable operating systems, mm-hmm. um, but performing innovative functions in society today. So it's, it's a catch-22. And that's I guess that comes back to that legislative piece which you were talking about is it has to be enforced that rather than being certified based on builder design, it should be that plus keeping up with the security uh, security landscape as well. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Like it's legislation, and then I wonder is there, you know, a version of the green tick for IoT devices that you know there's some sort mm. of global standard where if you see the you know the IoT green tick, you know that it's following the guidelines, the best practices around firmware updates, around, you know, no default, pa- well, you know, passwords that are, um, you know, reasonable and change and all the like, just good security mm. uh, practice type stuff. Um, mm. Like sort of pivot a little bit here. And, um, you know, we've talked about legislation in relation to IoT, but where we kind of connected was that um, the focus group that ASPE ran for the New South Wales government. And um, it was the, the, the sort of comment um, on the cybersecurity strategy, what were your thoughts coming away from that session? Yeah, I mean, it's great to see, right? Like any any think tank that, and I love the fact that they put together a think tank with Aspie, right? Because it was mm. sort of you know someone who was a little bit agnostic and didn't have yep. a, their own motivation. So it was really good to see that that type of initiative was put together. Um, and, and I think a lot of the ideas that came out of the think tank were 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 really good. Um, one one perspective, and it comes back to that grassroots piece. I think again, that's where the, some of the biggest impacts could occur in society around building a cyber safe New South Wales uh, is you know, starting not just marketing to the to the people in in privilege. And when we talk about people in privilege, it's like if you're already going to UTS and UNSW and you're studying IT, then Sure, we can market to you, but you're already on the pathway, and you're lucky to be in university in the first place. Um, it's you know, what about the rural areas? What about indigenous communities? What about you know other other race religions? People who you you know may not feel like they could be afforded the opportunity to be part of our industry. Mm. Um, I think that was a really cool discussion to have about how we can broaden the ecosystem and really diversify and and make this you know not a you know, hoodie, hoodie basement kind of um, industry, yeah. uh, make it a broad industry for anyone that anyone can be part of. Yeah. And there was an idea actually talking um, a, a bit around, you know, how apprenticeships could work and traineeships could work, you know, to enable other pathways to come in where you don't necessarily have to be, uh, you know, going to a big fancy school to, to get educated and then come into the industry, um, which I think is a common, uh, uh, you know, uh, common incorrect perception of of 
how we do what we do is you don't necessarily have to go to a fancy school to, mm. to come into our industry, but uh, it does make it harder if you don't know someone who can help you get in, right? Um, which, which is, I think, something some of the walls that we need to break down. It was great to see that was part of the discussion, and that's probably the biggest takeaway that that I t- that I got from it. Yeah, it was it was uh, it was a, a great session, and I totally echo what you say about Aspie being involved and, and sort of moderating the um, the session. So, hundred um, percent, like going from state level then up to really kind of national level. Um, what, what were your thoughts on the Australian cybersecurity strategy? And that was published fairly recently. I think actually just in the weeks before the state mm. focus group. Um, so kind of timely, but like, yeah, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, great strategy. Um, one thing I think was, at least from my perspective, the biggest potential shift and change is really diving deeper into risk management um, as an approach. So a lot of the identified key areas you could map directly to the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is a you know global standard that many organizations um, adhere to. And what it does is gives you a common language and a common understanding um, so mm. that you you make it easier to transition across the ecosystem, whether you're going from government to banking to you know, critical infrastructure, whatever it may be. So it was, it was really good to see that. Um, I, I don't think it's any secret that uh, yeah, Australia's cyber capabilities in that space have been backing. Um, I mean, even this week, I was reading an article in Innovation Oz, uh, you know, around the um, survey uh, index survey for 2020. I think Australia was ranked tenth overall in in terms of cybersecurity index ranking. But the most alarming piece was Australia was ranked sixteenth in cybersecurity capability, which is which means there's a huge disconnect between our awareness and intent, which I think we were ranked eighth or something, so it was pretty pretty good, um, to actual downstream investment in capability. And one of the things, and you and I were talking a little bit about this, is um, how do we make it easier and simpler and faster for government to evaluate and adopt new capability, mm-hmm. new technologies, new approaches, um, because you, you, you know, many people would know today it, it can take two years from initial conversation about new capability enhancement to actual practical implementation with a government agency. So I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that, but that that was something I thought that was that was lacking, or at least it wasn't clear on you know how all of this investment and change and, and interest from government would actually come into practical sense now and not. 10, 10 years away when we'll be another 10 years behind everybody else. It, it feels like something needs to, to change is the reality though. Um, and I would say there's the two parts, right? There's the projects within government entities where they're looking to procure uptick or change something or run a program um, to do security better. But as you say, like it's the machinery of government and um, mm. They are, you know, internal policy to the hilt. Um, my wife worked for a mm. semi-state body, and their hiring practices um, were so rigid in terms of what they had to do to fill a role. As a completely, you know, um, different type of analogy was set questions, the same questions for every candidate. You know, very, very much on rails because there was just a bunch of policies that they had to be compliant with. And um, I don't know. I mean, it feels like that's that's what 
I, I don't know how you solve that problem because there is, for me, you know, there there are elected um, representatives and you know are the people who do the administration essentially for the country. So part mm. of me does kind of buy into there needs to be some level of compliance and you know procurement has to be sort of on rails so that we all know. Um, you know, we don't end up as a country where, you know, money is just getting funneled out through governments to, you know, fake projects, which, you know, is, is obviously all, always a worry. So it's probably some balance in the, the more agile procurement and change management and project management and all of those things within government without giving too much away to protect Australian citizens and taxpayer dollars and all of that stuff as well. So um, I, I totally agree. Like there needs to be some sort of a conversation because... And you said it, I think, when we spoke last, you know, by the time the, the thing is done and in, it's already on next gen or you know, two, two generations past. Yeah. And, you know, it's already out of date by the time the thing has actually been implemented. So, mm. um, and, I, and I think I, one I, thing I've seen that's interesting in, in like, if, I, if you look at, and this came up on the ASPI call for New South Wales government, if you kind of look at Victorian government, in a sense, they've become really a, a leader in Australia in terms of their approach to cyber, right, um, and the way that they've structured the policies and they've structured the investment and they've structured you know, the, the head department working with the other key agencies. Um, and I think one interesting thing that we can, you know, we can look at, at that as a bit of a case study and potentially other governments could, could assess is, um, you know, the, the transition of people into some of those leadership positions within Victorian government from the corporate sector. Um, so bringing some of the agility, some of the innovation, um, some of the communication skills from the corporate environment into the government environment. And there are some examples in other governments where you can see that that's starting to, to take hold as well. Um, but, but but maybe that's how it can start to change, right, is mm. not, not foregoing the principles of you know, responsible business and procurement and, you know, compliance because that still has to exist. But I think it, the more and more we're able to cross-pollinate between private and public sector um, and have, you know, not just everybody within a department who's come through the government ranks because mm. you know, there's no one who's really trying to drive change. You've got a good mix of people. I think that's been an example in Victoria where you're starting to see th more innovation happened, more adoption happen, um, and some really good outcomes. And, and I think, you know, they are seen as a leading, uh, definitely a leading government in terms of the way they're approaching cybersecurity. Yeah, spot on. Um, so I think we've probably got time for one last question, and it sort of relates, I suppose, to the um, the national cybersecurity strategy, which talked a fair bit about SMBs and some of the sort of mm -hmm. Um, like the issues potentially in protecting them and some of the gaps that we have at the moment. And I know you've written about this um, in, your, in your kind of blog articles. What's mm -hmm. your perspective um, on, on the kind of SMB protection from cyber attacks? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a totally different conversation. Right? If you're thinking of big corporates uh, or government agencies or utilities firms, whatever, they're more of a discussion around you know, national security impacts and uh, or you know large populations of consumer data impact. Um, if you think about it at, at an SMB level, uh, it's the in essence the lifeblood of the country because ninety eight or whatever the re most recent stats is, but it's a very high nineties percentage of. Uh, Australian businesses are 
SMBs or SMEs, right? Um, and and functionally drive the the, the country forward from an economic um, standpoint. So, you know, continually impact in that space. And this comes back to our earlier discussion around, you know, the fear and the lack of understanding, the lack of mm. education. Um, the more that SMB market is impacted by cyber incidents, the more impactful it will become on our economy, right? It's yep. more unlikely for a large corporate like CBA or Westpac or anyone to experience a cyber attack because they, they understand it, right? They're very well prepared. Um, but smaller businesses that employ people in rural areas or even in the cities, um, that can have huge economic impact to society and families. And if, if we don't find a way to help them, uh, both either, you know, funding-wise or at least education-wise, uh, I think that puts us in a really vulnerable position. Um, and I think it comes back to the, the campaign aspects, right? We do, mm. we do a pretty good job at promoting Stay, Start, Stay Smart Online Week and Cybersecurity Month. I think we can do more there um, because if you think of the people that are in SMBs or SMEs, both as workers or business owners, they're the majority of people who are the individuals that we're talking about as well, that crossover from, you know, I know a little bit about technology, but I don't really know anything about cybersecurity. So I think government um, can make a, an investment there that would dramatically increase the country's cyber resiliency for sure. Awesome. And I think that's a pretty positive note um, to, to finish off on. Um, Jason, really, really appreciate it. Um, you taking the time. Um, yeah, like I say, I saw your commentary in the um, the state um, cybersecurity focus group, and I was like, hey, that's a guy I would, I would very like, very much like to talk to. Um, so appreciate you uh, taking the the, uh, the time out to to do the um, interview today. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me, Gal. It was a it was a good chat. Really appreciate it. Could talk for hours on some of these topics, but. Uh, you know, we need more people having the conversation, right? Because that's how we, we generate the awareness and we impact change eventually. Eventually. Um, wise words, <laughs> wise words to, uh, to end on. Uh, thanks so much, Jason. <laughs> thanks. Thanks again to Jason for the conversation. It's amazing how quickly time goes when you're speaking to someone like him. As always, thank you for listening to the Get Cyber Resilient podcast. The back catalog grows every week, so dip into those and subscribe, like, share, let your friends know and let us know of the people you want interviewed or topics you want us to cover. For now, keep safe and I look forward to catching you on the next episode.